Our sermon text today is Psalm 29, every first Sunday of the month. Uh, our custom so far has been to go through the Psalms in order, so that's where we are. We're at Psalm 29. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, we'll be happy to, to grab one for you, or you can just look in your bulletin on the right side there. It's printed for you. But I'll ask, uh, as is our custom, that you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Psalm 29, give ear to the reading of God's Word. A psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And all in his temple cry, Glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask God's blessing once again upon his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we know that uh, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we ask once again that you would teach us by your spirit. Give us understanding into your word today, that we might know you better. And we ask that you would uh, open our eyes to see great things from your, from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you might have noticed that this Psalm of David here, Psalm 29, it, it actually starts with a call to worship. Uh, not just of the Lord's people, uh, but of the angels themselves. It's a call to worship to the angels in verses 1 to 2. It's much like part of what we sang, I uh, thought about it when we were seeing the doxology, when we, we pray to, to those above. You know, Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. That's what verses 1 and 2 uh, call them to do as well and we along with those angelic hosts are instructed here three times in verses 1 and 2 to ascribe or to give glory and strength to the Lord the glory that's due him alone and David spends most of the psalm verses 3 through 10 describing the power of the Lord uh, in, in his voice it says the voice of the Lord it says seven times in those verses, it's, it's mentioned. And the voice of the Lord is heard in the psalm in something in particular, and that's the, the violent storm. There's a violent storm in, in this psalm, and that is where the voice of the Lord is to be heard in this psalm. The thunder, basically, the thunder of the storm, the noise of the storm, is thought of and pictured here as the voice of the Lord. It's the sound of God's voice, the destructive power of the storm is an echo and a hint of the power of the voice of the Lord. The Lord is to be feared and the Lord is to be glorified. The psalm actually ends 
with an encouragement to us as his people that this God of incomprehensible power and glory is our God and he gives strength. This God of strength and glory gives strength to his people and blesses us with peace in verse 11. Now this beautiful psalm, if you think about it, it kind of has a flow uh, much like an order of worship. We have an order of worship in your bulletin. Uh, It's got a lot more detail maybe than the psalm does as far as uh, the different sections and things. But the psalm has an order of worship. In a sense, it, it is an order of worship. It starts with a call to worship in those first two verses. Uh, and then it, 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 the voice of the Lord in the psalm there, uh, it sweeps over the creation uh, in the center of that psalm, the longest portion. And what are we supposed to do there? First, we're told to give glory to God. Then we're basically to, to sort of see, in a sense, the glory and strength of God displayed. And then at last, the psalmist gives us the word of benediction or blessing. That's what a benediction is. It's literally a good word or a word of blessing at at the end. So this morning, our outline, as as it should, is going to follow the outline of the text. It's going to follow the outline of the psalm in its order of worship. So first, we're going to see the call to worship, the call to worship, the glory and strength of the Lord in verses 1 and 2. Second thing we're going to see is the glory and strength of the Lord on display through his voice in the midst of the storm in verses 3 through 10. And then third, we're going to see the benediction, the Lord of strength, giving strength to his people in verse 11. So the first thing, the call to worship, the glory and strength of the Lord, verses 1 to 2. There David writes, ascribe or give, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, worship the Lord, in the splendor of holiness. I've already said it, but it it bears repeating. Think about who is being addressed here. I think we make make that jump and we think, well, we are. And we are. But who is primarily, in in verses 1 and 2, being called to worship? Some, Matthew Henry, I believe, among others, uh, has, uh, has said that the people being called to worship are kings and princes, mighty men, people that are in high places of power. And that's certainly true. Everyone is called to worship the one true and living God. Everyone without exception. But he says here in verse 1, O heavenly beings, you know, a more wooden, literal way of putting that would be, O sons of the mighty. But David here is speaking primarily of angels. Not just people, not just mighty people, not just rulers and princes and kings. He's speaking of angels. Now think about that for a moment. Think about that uh, for just a second. That angels are being called to worship the one true and living God. And to ascribe to him glory and to ascribe to him strength. If you and I, standing here or somewhere else, were to see an angel... um, You know, I don't think that our first instinct will be to grab our smartphone take a picture and post it to Facebook or Instagram or some such thing, I don't think your response would be, oh, that's pretty cool. I I wish everybody else, wish my family could be here to see this. My friends aren't going to believe it. Your response would be probably to fall on your face and tremble. You might even be tempted to worship the angel. That is how powerful and majestic they appear. I've never seen one. You probably, I, I assume, have never seen one either. Uh, The Apostle John in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19.10, 
is tempted to do just that. The angel is giving him uh, a revelation. He's, he's speaking to him, showing him something from the Lord. And he's tempted. He basically falls down at the angel's feet and begins to worship. And the angel has to tell him, stop. You know, I, I'm a fellow servant, is what he tells him uh, there in verse 10. I'm a fellow servant, in a sense, just like you. Now, he's not just like John. But he's not God, is he? He's mightier, in a sense, than the Apostle John certainly was. But he tells him, I, I'm not one for you to worship. I worship the same God that you do. I'm a fellow fellow servant. And as if to, to impress upon us, the reader of Scripture, uh, just how impressive and awesome these angels are, the very same thing happens again to John in Revelation 22, 8 to 9. He sees the angel again. What does he do? Starts to bow down and worship. He falls to his knees and starts to worship. The angel has to tell him again, no, 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 no. You know, no, 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 no. Don't, I'm, an, I'm not God. You're not God. We, I worship the same God you do. He has to stop him. Again, angels are powerful and overwhelmingly impressive creatures of God. And I think uh, we would do no better than John did. Certainly we can't claim to be more wise than the Apostle John. We might be tempted to worship. And yet they too are, are called here in the psalm to worship the one true and living God, to worship the Lord. You might remember in Isaiah chapter 6, a familiar passage for a lot of you, the, the calling of Isaiah the prophet back in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6. You might remember the, the vision that, that Isaiah was given of the temple and the, you know, the, the train of the, the Lord's robe filled the temple. And what did he see? He saw seraphim. Literally, it means burning ones. These angels, these burning angels, uh, basically, that had six wings. And with two, they covered their face. With two, they covered with their feet. And with two, they flew. And they cried out back and forth to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a, is a, it's a, it's a military term. It's the Lord of armies. Uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The train of his robe filled the temple. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what was the response of the angels? Not just worship, not just calling out, holy, 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 took their wings and covered their faces. They weren't worthy to behold the glory of the Lord. Angels weren't worthy to behold the glory of the Lord, and they worshiped in such a way. Now, you know, we would be impressed, to say the least. We'd probably be frightened by an angel if we saw one. And yet, their power and glory is infinitely dwarfed by that, by the power, the strength, the glory of the Lord. And their worship shows just that. And three times, three times in verses 1 to 2, David tells the angels, and, and also us as well, uh, too, to give or to ascribe to the Lord, glory and strength. Now, you know, we, it, it's often said, ironically repeated often, that when the Bible repeats something, it should grab our attention. When those angels in Isaiah 6 and also in Revelation say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that should grab our attention. No other attribute of God in Scripture is repeated three times, and that happens twice when it comes to God's holiness. We need to come to grips and understand that our God is holy. And three times here in verses 1 to 2, we along with the angels are called, exhorted, and even commanded to worship the Lord. The call to worship, in a sense, is a command, isn't it? It's not uh, just an invitation. Have you ever considered the fact that worshiping 
the Lord. Not just worship in general. Worshiping the Lord is not optional. Have you considered the fact that worship is our duty and even our obligation as God's creatures, as God's creation, and as God's people? Notice that David calls us to ascribe to the Lord what? In verse 2, the glory due His name. We're to ascribe the Lord the glory, the strength that's due His name. Worship and giving glory to God is what is due or is owed to His name. Those who refuse to worship God, as, as Rob said, in a sense, shake their fist at Him. Uh, those who refuse to worship Him and give Him the glory that is due unto His name are living in rebellion against the Lord. It's no small thing to refuse to worship the one true and living God. We kind of take it as a small thing, but it really isn't. In fact, a refusal to worship the one true and living God is actually the height, or you could say the depth, of sin and depravity, if you really think about it. We don't think about it that way. We think about worship. We like to worship. We like Sundays. We like coming to church and worshiping the Lord. Uh, But think about that next time someone tells you uh, that they're basically a good person, but they don't need that religion thing, or whatever, however they put it. Maybe that describes you in some sense this morning. Um, here's the question to ask. Do they worship the Lord? I'm not saying they have to do it here. We're not a cult. We don't say we're the only, we're the only true church. That's, that's nonsense. But do they worship the Lord? Do they ascribe unto the Lord the glory and strength that is due to His name? It's owed to his name. If not, then he or she is, is someone, no matter how much nice a person they may seem, they are living in rebellion against the Lord by not giving him the glory that's due his name alone and not to anything that else. Not only that, but those who worship false gods, those who worship false religion, and even those who presume to worship God in some other name by which he has not chosen to reveal himself, are also living in open rebellion against the one true and living God. What does it say? We're to ascribe to him the glory that is due what? His name. His name. The name by which he calls himself. You know, when you, you know Rebecca and I are, are expecting a child in September, and I appreciate all your support and prayers. And we've, you all know what his name is already. Most people don't do that, but we, it, the cat came out of the bag weeks and weeks and weeks ago, and... That horse is already out of the barn. There's no use locking the door now. But, you know, baby Luke, now the Internet will know what his name is. Um, you know, but we chose the name, right? We didn't take a poll. We didn't uh, give everybody the chance to vote. Not that you would have cared. You know, you might have wanted to vote. But, you know, we chose his name. And in a sense, why is that? We, in a sense, we are given authority over our children. The first, and the first thing about that is we get to pick the name. You know, nobody picks the name for us. Sometimes your family might try to pick a name for you or, or try to dissuade you from a name they don't like. But, but picking a name is kind of an authoritative action, isn't it? I name, we name our pets, we name our children. Not, not equating those two by any stretch. Um, but we don't get to name God. We don't get to pick his name. He reveals his name to us by his mercy and by his goodness to us as, as his creatures. But we don't get to name him. He's not a pet. We don't get to pick whatever name we feel like using for him. And so we don't get to worship the Lord on our own terms. We don't have the authority over him to presume to name him or call him whatever we want to call him. 
We don't get to worship him by whatever name we choose to worship him by. Now listen to Paul's words, a familiar text as well. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. And listen to what he, listen to how he describes, in a sense, sin and depravity of, of mankind. He says, for the wrath of God, the wrath of God, Romans 1, 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not just the unrighteousness that we don't like or that we take offense to. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he says, for his invisible at God, for his invisible attributes, namely, oh, I'm sorry, I, I missed a word. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, ever since day one, literally, in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, here it is, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's a summary, in a sense, of of man in rebellion against God. A summary of, 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 our, of our chief sin in some ways. It says, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. It's, it's insult to injury in a sense, isn't it? Not only not acknowledging God as God, giving him the glory and honor due his name, and not thanking him, but doing what with that glory and with that thanks in a sense? Giving it to other things. Not just not worshiping. Everybody worships something. They may not realize it, but everybody worships something. But when we, don't, we worship something other than God, putting something else in his place and giving that something else his glory due his name alone, that's rebellion. So everybody, according to Romans 1, according to Psalm 19, according to Scripture, everyone knows that God is there. Don't they? Everyone. Unbelievers know, but what does Paul say they do with that truth? They suppress it. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Romans 1.18. It also says that no one has excuse. None. No one has an excuse. No one can honestly and sincerely claim that they did not know that there is a God. We claim otherwise, but we do not have that excuse. And again, what is the height of sin according to that passage? It's simply that although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And instead, what did they do? They set their hearts to worship created things and give unto them the glory that rightly belongs only to the Lord of, uh, alone. To use the words of Psalm 29, they don't ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The glory do his name alone. Well, verses 3 through 10. Verses 3 through 10, we see the glory and strength of the Lord on display. And on display in a particular way. On display in a storm. That's probably putting it lightly when you read the description of what this storm sounds like. Um, so we see that his strength and, and glory on display in the storm. Now, verses 3 through 10, it, 
maybe some of you guys are, are, the, the, are weather nuts. You know, you kind of watch the weather channel all the time. When there's a storm, you can't wait to watch the footage. And maybe you like to watch storm chasing shows and things like that. Well, Psalm 29 verses 3 through 10 takes you from before the storm, the inception of the storm, the havoc it, re- it, it wreaks along the land, all the way to its conclusion, all the way to its aftermath. In verse 3 it says, The voice of the Lord... Now that's the first of seven times in this psalm that the phrase, the voice of the Lord, is going to appear. The voice of the Lord, it says, is over the waters. It's just the word Mayan, waters, just plain old water. He's over the waters. Uh, We think it's probably the Mediterranean Sea in this case, looking at the geography. But the voice of the Lord is over the waters. It kind of sounds like that verse in Genesis 1, when it talks about the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of God, hovering over the face of the deep kind of thing, but is over the waters, and then something happens. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, something happens. What is it? It says, the God of glory thunders, in verse 3. The Lord over many waters. So the storm is about to start. The thunder is about to start. The storm clouds gather at his command, and the raging tempest that the psalm describes uh, begins to sweep across the land. It goes from Lebanon, verse 3, to Syrian, or Lebanon, verse 5, rather, Syrian, verse 6, all the way to the wilderness of Kadesh in verse 8. James Boyce gives us, uh, people like me that are geographically challenged, gives us uh, a geographical snapshot of the storm's path. And he says, it is, quote, a storm arising over the Mediterranean Sea to the north, sweeping down the entire length of, of the land of Canaan, the entire length of Canaan, and then disappearing out over the desert to the south. So this is a big storm. This is a whopper. This is one of those ones that when you look at the TV, when they show the the storm tracker or whatnot, it covers a large amount of territory. It's not a little localized rainstorm that causes a little bit of home damage like we've had here in our town uh, a week ago uh, or so. So this, this is no tempest in a teapot. It's no little rainstorm. Um, it's not just a, a, not even just a thunderstorm here in the text. This, this very well could be a hurricane. It's something like that, something awe-inspiring, something powerful, something vastly destructive in its path. Now, whatever kind of storm David describes here, it's frightening. The destruction it wreaks is, is awe-inspiring and frightening. I don't know, have you ever experienced a severe thunderstorm? Maybe if you're from here, you haven't had too many of those. Uh, Southern California isn't really known for those. Uh, maybe if you've raised, been raised somewhere else or lived elsewhere for a time. Um, maybe you've had that kind, you've been around that kind that kind of rattled the whole house when the thunder struck, if it was close enough or rattled your bones. Maybe it's uh, been enough to even scare you a little bit, make you jump. Have you ever been in the middle of one? God forbid you've been in the middle of one outside and not in the safety of your, of your home. You know, you know how often, uh, again, we don't get them very often out here, but I know back home, this is what we would do, maybe you do this too, when there's a real good, a real, a real good storm comes, and it's got the thunder and it's got the lightning, what do you do when you see the bolt of lightning hit? You count. You go one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, and it's probably an old wives' tale, but we were always told every second is a mile. Now, it's probably not accurate, but so if it's, Three seconds away, or three seconds between the, the lightning flash and the thunder, it's three miles. The lightning is around three miles away, something like that. 
Um, well, every once in a while, you ever get one that's almost simultaneous? That's how you know you're close. You know, you see the lightning and the thunder hits right away and you almost jump out of your skin. That's, uh, that's the kind of a picture. That's more the kind of picture that's being uh, painted, painted here. And again, we don't get too many storms like that here. When, growing up as a kid in central Pennsylvania, we got, we got a few of those. We got, we got those every year. You know, the kind that you, you, your mom or your dad would say, unplug everything. You know, turn the TV off, unplug it, you know, get away from the windows. You know, and what do you want to do? You want to sit outside and watch it, but sometimes you'd actually see the bolt hit if it was close enough. You know, and if you have any good self-preservation instinct, uh, your first instinct is not to go outside and, uh, and test the Lord in that regard. But when I was little, I really got scared by those things. Maybe you did too when that happened. Well, this, this storm is far worse than that. This isn't just a thunderstorm, as bad as those can be. Charles Spurgeon likens the storm to the artillery of heaven. The artillery of heaven. You know, I've, maybe you've read some uh, war books. I've read a lot of uh, Stephen Ambrose's books. His description of artillery fire is, is kind of scary from the first-hand accounts of the guys who have lived through it. Uh, it, it shakes your entire body. It, it, uh, you heard the term shell shock. You know, when an artillery round would come in, uh, a, you know, a shell shock, that's where that word comes from, that phrase comes from. You basically couldn't move. I mean, you were just dumbstruck. Sometimes they had to treat you, treat many men just from that, not from physical injury, but from shell shock. Well, that's, that's the kind of thing that the storm has done. The voice of the Lord in this storm is so powerful that in verse 5 we're told, that it, quote, breaks the cedars. It breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Now, those cedars were world famous in those days. Think of it kind of like the redwood trees in Northern California. Have you ever seen those? You were going camping in the redwoods? You see a, you see a picture of them. It's like, oh, yeah, they're pretty, pretty impressive. Then you go and stand next to one. Then you're really impressed. They're, they're humongous. You can't imagine something knocking them down. You can't imagine them ever falling. It's, it's the picture of strength. You know, we talk about people, if you, if you know a strong person, you might say that person's an oak. You know, because an oak's a strong, stout tree. Well, a redwood or a cedar, the cedar of Lebanon, cedars of Lebanon were massive. They were immovable. They were a picture of strength. You might know that Solomon's temple, 1 King Kings chapter 5, a lot of the wood from the, for the temple was what? The cedars of Lebanon. And why is that? Because they were strong. It was the strongest wood they could imagine getting. Well, our text tells us that those cedars of Lebanon were shattered by the voice of the Lord. Imagine, imagine seeing a redwood explode. That's kind of the picture here. The storm is so powerful. The voice of the Lord sweeps over and just, like it's a bunch of toothpicks, and just destroys it and just shatters it. That's the power of the voice of the Lord in the storm. It also says that it shakes Lebanon and Syrian as if they were calves and oxen jumping around. You know, it's, it sounds like an earthquake. You know, what they, you know when you see a, a you know unbroken calf, you know, kind of bucking and jumping around, kind of thing. Imagine the land visibly doing that. That's what it seemed like in this in this storm. It also says in verse seven, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Now that word flashes forth, that phrase there. Uh, the Hebrew word it means to hew or to, it's like to hew out or to carve. It's the same word used of digging a well or, or, or chiseling, you know, carving a piece of wood or a piece 
of stone. So the lightning in this storm was not random. You know, we think of lightning as random. You know, when you look at it, it just seems like the, the lightning bolts, the different things kind of scatter all over the place. It, it, to us, it looks random, but they're not. They're carved out by the Lord. They're sent by him. And that word for hewn out, it also might have the idea, when you think of shoveling something, you know, digging a well, it might have the idea of, of there being a lot that God is digging out lightning and just shoveling it at, at, at the land uh, and doing, doing damage to that. Um, children, little ones that are here this morning, you know, next time, Lord willing, you get to see a lightning bolt, maybe here or maybe somewhere else. Next time you see a lightning bolt, give glory to God for that lightning bolt. He's the one that sent it. He's the one that hewed it out and formed it. Know that he designed every last twist and turn of those fiery bolts that you see and are impressed by. He not only sends it forth, but he carves it out as the way an artist carves a sculpture from a block of wood or a block of stone. Every last bolt is a work of the Lord. And it says there that the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Twice in verse 8 it tells us that. And it makes the deer to give birth. In other words, it makes the deer to give birth prematurely. It, it scares them so badly that they're, they're young before the time. Their young actually come out. And then it says in verse 9 that it strips the forest bare. Strips the forest bare. All the trees that are standing, all of a sudden they are not standing. It's like somebody took a big razor and just sweep the sideline of the, of, of the hills. You know, it's a picture of devastation. Now, children, have you ever felt an earthquake? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Out here, everybody, all my friends back home, oh, don't you worry about earthquakes. Have you felt a good one? I haven't really, I've slept through most of them. But have you ever felt, ever felt the house shake? Or if you're outside, you just kind of feel a little bit of a shake to the house, even a little one? Every time you, you feel a little earthquake, big or small, what you should do, among other things, besides hide under a desk or whatever they tell you to do, um, take that as a reminder of the power of God. It's a little tiny hint of the awesome power of God. Each one of those tremors and quakes comes from the hand of God. And it's a reminder, a small reminder, of his power and strength. Well, then, in the psalm, we go from the voice of the Lord being, quote, over the waters in verse 3, to the Lord in verse 10, finally, sitting, quote, enthroned over the flood in the aftermath. So this was a deluge. So it's, you've got the beginning, you've got the calm waters, the voice of the Lord thunders, the God of glory thunders, the storm hits, destroys everything in its path, all the way from the north down to the south, out in the wilderness. And now you, it has the Lord in the aftermath, sitting enthroned over the flood. It's the same word used of Noah's flood, a deluge. That's the picture. So now you have all the damage and the water just sitting there on top of everything. And who's on top of that flood? Who sits enthroned over that flood? You know, that's the Lord. You know, picture that, again, if you watch the Weather Channel or you, watch, you, know, you look at the news when a storm hits, they show that aerial shot where really you get a real picture of the damage. The houses flattened, the trees gone, the bridges out. That's the picture here. And who's over that flood? The Lord. The Lord is over that, that flood. Verse 10, it says, The Lord sits enthroned forever. So God is the God of the storm. The storm we just had in town here wasn't nearly as bad as that. There was, there was plenty of damage. I know some are still trying to fix their homes, pray for them and help them. But God is the God of the storm. 
He's the one that calls the storm into being. He decides the limits of its power. He determines the course of its path. The storm is his storm, and it does his bidding as all of creation does as well. God is the God of the storm. Well, the third and the final thing that we're going to see in our text is in verse 11, and that's the Lord of glory and strength gives strength to his people. Verse 11, he gives strength to his people. There in verse 11, now, at first glance, having you know gone through this big description of the storm in verses 3 through 10, Verse 11 might to you seem a little out of place in, in some sense. Like, it's like this death, destruction, you know, tumult, flood, deluge, and then a benediction at the end. It, it almost seems odd at first blush. It says in verse 11, May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Now the temple of the Lord in this psalm in verse 9 it almost seems like it's a little version of Noah's Ark. This little refuge from, from the flood. Everywhere there's damage, but what does it say in verse 9? In his temple all cry glory. It's like they're safe from the storm inside that temple. The people of the Lord are kept safe from the storm of God's wrath. And what does the benediction in verse 11 say of and to us as the Lord's people, it speaks of the Lord to whom we are to ascribe glory and what? Strength, verses 1 through 3. The one whose glory and strength were on mighty display in that storm, that awe-inspiring storm. It speaks of that God giving strength to his people. So as the Lord's people, you can think of a literal storm this way too. That, the God of that kind of awesome power is the God who gives strength to his people. Uh, that's the God we serve. That's the God that we worship. And that's the God who is, who is not just God, who is, if you're in Christ, he's our God. He's for us and gives strength to us. In Psalm 46, uh, we've, we talked about that and we sang about that uh, in recent weeks. Uh, a mighty fortress is our God by Luther is based on that. It paints a similar picture in some sense to what our psalm does here. Psalm 46, verses 6 to 7, it says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, and then what does it say? He utters his voice, the earth melts. The nations rage against the Lord and his anointed, Psalm 2. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter or shake. He, the Lord, utters his voice, and the earth melts. That's power. That's the power of the voice of the Lord. It's already been mentioned this morning. How did God create the heavens and the earth? What does Genesis 1 tell us? He spoke, let there be light, and what happened? There was light. He spoke. He, he simply spoke. That's power. And when he utters his voice, the earth melts. But what does 40, Psalm 46, verse 7, the next verse say? Right after that phrase, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The God who is your fortress, if you are in Christ, is the God of infinite power. The one who, when he utters his voice, the earth melts. That's your fortress. That's the God of Jacob who is with us in Christ. Now the strength of the Lord is a terror to the wicked who refuse to repent and believe in Christ as Lord. But to the redeemed of the Lord, to those who have turned from their sins and turned to Christ by faith, to them alone... 
They, you, have the very omnipotence of Almighty God watching over you and securing your salvation for all eternity so that nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 39. Not only that, but what does the text say? The power of God in Christ gives us something else, not just strength, but peace. What's the very last word in Psalm 29? Peace. Shalom is the word in Hebrew. The very last word is peace. Think about that. The God of the storm, the Lord of glory and strength, blesses his people with peace. It's the last word you probably expected to see in this psalm when you were reading through it. The God who can wreak this destruction through storm from his voice. Uh, That same God in his power gives us peace and shalom to his people. Uh, That's that's the, the power and the ability to give peace uh, from God to his people and why is that why is it that this Lord that the Lord of heaven and earth can speak peace to his people and bless us with his peace well it's only because he's poured out the storm of his just and holy wrath on his son Jesus Christ in our place Jesus is the ark that saves us from the flood and from the storm of God's wrath God can't speak peace to sinners uh, who are under his wrath but if In Christ, he has poured his wrath out on him in our place. That is what he came to do. So this morning I have to ask, are you in Christ? Have you turned from your sin? Have you turned to Christ alone for forgiveness and eternal life? Jesus is the only way of salvation from the storm of God's wrath. If you're a believer in Christ, your response will and must be one thing. To ascribe to the Lord Jesus Christ glory and strength. To give unto him the glory that is due unto his holy name. For he rose from the dead for our justification. And is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what did the, what did the Nicene Creed say? From there he will come with glory. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is the Lord who sits enthroned as king forever in verse 10. And Jesus alone is the one who gives his strength and his shalom to his people forever. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of, of, of all creation. That you spoke and all things came into existence. And your power is beyond our comprehension. And we give you glory. We ascribe to you what is yours alone. The glory and strength due to your name. And we know every time we see a storm. It's but a hint of your awesome power and might. It's but a hint of your glory. And each time we see something like that, it should cause us to drop to our knees in worship and to be reminded of the power, the awesome power of you, the one true and living God, and that that power, that you are our refuge, the God of Jacob is our refuge, and that you are the one who is our, who is our fortress, that you are with us and as our fortress And if our fortress is that powerful, nothing can snatch us from your hands. Give us grace to give to you, not just Sundays, but every day in all things. Help us to ascribe to you glory and strength that is due to your name as God and as our God and Savior. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.